be you. Everybody else is already taken. Yeah. And so just I want to inspire you to be you. And if you have a calling to be a shaman or you have a calling to be a holistic coach, go and do that. Don't wait for someone to tell you to do it. Or, you know, you ask people, what should I do? They'll have lots of opinions of what you should do with your life. But really, I want you to inspire you to just rise up inside of yourself and say, what is true to me? What is my authentic purpose here on this planet? And use your gifts that you're given because, like I said, there's only one of you and there's only one person who has those gifts. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Check faculty member, Angie Check. Angie is a certified nutritionist, Czech Institute trained professional, and a graduate of the advanced training three-year shamanic program offered through the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. She is also a graduate of Nine Gates Mystery School and holds a certification in energy medicine. All right. Well, Angie, it's lovely to be able to talk to you about modern shamanism. Thank you for joining me. It's nice to be here. I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. You know, we were together, uh, we've been together for seven years, so I was with you when you went through your advanced training for three years, so I got to kind of feel the buzz, and I did sneak in and have a look now and then. <laughs> yes, I didn't you know did. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to do that till you told me that, but uh, at least you knew you're not married to a deadhead. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about in our discussion today is that the word shaman is is kind of becoming um, a click. It's uh, kind of like a fad almost. And shamanism, as you know, has a very, very deep history, deeper than religion. In fact, what we call religion emerged out of shamanism. But typically, if you travel to places like Peru or various other countries where shaman are more rooted in the culture, <clears throat> the shaman there often go through years of training under sometimes one shaman, but often multiple other shaman. <clears throat> For example, your friend Sean Lee, um, he trained with like 10 or 12 different shaman once he left shaman school. Um, and shared with me how much he gained from all these different approaches. But in the United States and Europe and Australia and places that, that I frequent and, and have relationships with people in, I've had numerous students tell me, oh, they're going to see a shaman or clients that are seeing, do a sh- seeing a shaman, but usually they're people that have somehow identified themselves as a shaman, which I'm not for or against, but what happens is there's really no uh, there's no core training. There's nothing consistent among them, um, and in many ways they're almost like um, people that call themselves energy healers. Some of them have unique abilities. They might be able to do things that psychics do. They might be able to um, do tarot readings or a variety of other approaches that are lumped in to shamanism. So with your background and, and your years of experience and practice, I'm wondering what is shamanism and how does shamanism differ from other forms of energy medicine, folk medicine, or new age healing approaches? 
Okay, well, you know, shamanism, it originated, the word originated from the Tungus language. It's a Siberian uh, language, and it actually meant that a person who was traveling in non-ordinary reality, mm-hmm. in, its, um, in an unconscious or uh, altered state of consciousness, and that's really where the true word came from. And I think shamanism became a buzzword because before we used the word shaman, there was words like witch and wizard, mm-hmm. and it had this... <clears throat> different cog, you know, indication of what they were doing. So people were like, oh, that's sorcery, or that's voodoo, or that's something. So shamanism came with a mystique word to it, so it's like a new way of dis- you know, describing this. So I think people are using that word because it's used differently than when you hear, oh, th- that person's a witch. Mm-hmm. Or you hear a shaman, they go, oh, shaman sounds really cool. Witch sounds like they're going to do some black magic to me. Yeah. And I think that's why we're hearing, seeing the word shaman more, more readily now in our culture than we did before. Um, but, you know, if you look at the roots of shamanism, there's a definition I wanted to read to you. It's uh, mm-hmm. actually from one of my teachers, Don Oscar uh, Miro Casada. And he says, a shaman is one who develops a personal and intimate relationship with the unseen world for the purpose of being of service as a teacher. Mm. This relationship is cultivated ex- experientially through self-induced altered states of consciousness, r- ritual ceremony, and refined energetic awareness. Shamanism is not a religion. It is a spiritual practice grounded in a reverent awareness that the world is animated, conscious, and energetically independent. And I think that's a really beautiful way to sum up what shamanism is really about. And it's mm-hmm. this deep connection to the earth and the spirits of the animals and the spirits of the plants and, and being uh, aware that everything is alive. And I think that's what you know, we really have to remember that what true shamanism is about. Yes. <clears throat> now... Um Having looked into you know, all sorts of different authors and documentaries on these topics, because as you know, they're very interesting to me. It's interesting that uh, there's a fair bit of shamanism that is more earth oriented, like, you know, nature spirits or ha- happenings with the tribe, uh, a sick person. Uh, shaman used to be very involved in things like. Uh, tribal warfare, casting spells, um, finding animals when they were for the for the hunters of a tribe. But one of the things I've noticed is that there's also shaman that seem to be uh, extraterrestrial or extra dimensional. Um, many of those tend to be using psychedelic medicines, which are classic, as you know, to many native shamanic traditions. But um, if you look, for example, at Graham, Graham Hancock's book, Supernatural, he goes quite extensively into the experiences that shaman have and the ladders they climb that go off into other dimensions and uh, working with spirit animals such as maybe an eagle, a hawk, or a raven and flying into extraterrestrial dimensions that they describe as interacting with this dimension. So it it seems that there is, and the other thing too is that was very interesting is that when he looked at people that had had what he classified as a shamanic initiation through these types of uh, extra dimensional relationships, that they were almost identical to the claims of people that had had contact with or been abducted by UFOs, and it looked like they were going through some kind of an initiatory experience, 
Um, so my kind of w- query is, in your experience, uh, what percentage of the shamans that you've worked and interacted with are extra dimensional versus more middle realm and underworld realm? Yeah, well, you know, according to Michael Harner's work, he says that actually only 10% of indigenous people were using psychedelic drugs. Mm. So, you know, the majority of them were just using their, uh, you know, using a drum and using Mm. a beat to bring themselves into this trance-like state. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm thinking nowadays, and maybe that number was higher, but maybe what he was subjected to, um, it was, he reported as only 10%. But I think now with the trend for people to learn higher consciousness and, and, you know, wanting to get to these realms quicker, you know, they're doing the expedited route of just saying, we'll take this drug and you'll see things you've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're seeing a higher percentage now than we ever have. Um, because it's becoming more mainstream, and you're hearing about more and more people going off into the Amazon to do psychedelic drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you know, even if they didn't do a psychedelic drug, the shaman did travel to these cosmos as well. So mm-hmm. um, the work that I seen with the shaman that I worked with, they were always working in three dimensions. You know, there's the middle reality, which is where we're at now, mm-hmm. and there's also the middle reality you don't see, where there's like people who've passed on that don't know they've died, and they're still here in that middle world. Mm-hmm. And then there's the upper world and the lower world. And the upper world, as was classified, is one where you see a lot of angelic beings. Mm-hmm. You know, spiritual beings are there. And the lower world isn't of devil and you know satanic things. The lower world is actually full of animal spirits. It's more like jungle-like. So earth-oriented. Yes. And so we have these three different worlds that we talk about. And so usually as a shaman, we go through these three worlds, and they're all kind of spiraling together and Mm -hmm. so if you go far enough into the upper world you find yourself in the lower world and you keep on going you're back in the middle world and so it's almost mind-boggling and and um, almost nauseating at times (laughs) well if you know god is often symbolized as a a circle or a sphere so if you imagine a, a, a circle with divided into thirds if you go far enough in any direction, you're going to basically hit what connects all of them together. Absolutely. So, you know, I know because, you know, you and I have been together for quite a while, so I get more access to you than most people, and, and, you know, we do a lot of these types of things together, but I think it would be fun if you shared your evolution as a person through mystery schools and the kinds of things, because you had done a lot of development even before you became a shaman, so to speak. And so it seems to me that, well, there's two things. It seems to me that you were being potentially led um, in your life path uh, by what I often call the invisible thread or the invisible golden thread. Um, so a couple of questions is, do you feel that you were being led to the place that you're at now so that each of the things like the mystery schools and the various workshops ultimately were like pieces of a puzzle? Or was it that you just had a general interest and happened to no, jump into a shaman I think school. this latter. I really think there was a, a purpose and there was us <clears throat> being guided, even though at the time I didn't know. It was just this sudden urge to do something. And, you know, I was compelled to take these classes. And, you know, I really think it was around 
I would say the year 2010 is really when I started having this kind of a spiritual awakening. I mean, my whole life I've had some pretty amazing events happen as a child and that I was always dabbling in these different realms. But it was about the year 2010 when I kind of just said, I realized that I had a need to learn more about life and I was wanting to explore, um, you know, non-realities, if you'd say. And I would ask my friends, hey, let's take this class. And, and they'd be like, no, you know, I don't have the time or I don't have the money or, oh, it's too far away or whatever it was. And I just got to a point where I realized, you know what, if I'm going to do these things, I got to do it by myself. Mm-hmm. And I think it really started with your work. I started taking the Czech Institute courses. And that was a, you know, it, it was a way of saying, I want to learn more about me. So I started the, the, you know, taking the Czech practitioner courses and learn about the body and then learning about more about holistic health. But that empowered me to take a class by myself because I always had these ideas that you went with a buddy. Mm. And so when I first went, I was kind of intimidated because I was thought I'd be the only one by myself. And then I realized most people take courses by themselves. You don't mm. actually go with a friend. And so that was like a big awakening. I'm like, you know, I love this. I'm, I'm learning things. I'm getting new tools. And so then I thought, well, what else am I excited about? And so I was, um, th- there was that movie, The Secret, that came out. Mm-hmm. And John Astroff was in that movie, and he was the one with the vision boards. And he was talking about your dream and um, creating vision boards so you can create what you want. So I ended up taking a class with him. That was back in 2010 as well. Mm-hmm. And it was all about, it's called the Have it all, Having It All Challenge. Mm-hmm. And so there was students, I don't remember how many were in that class, 30 or so, um, but they were from all over the world. And so we had online courses and we'd be talking about what we wanted in life and how we were going to achieve it. And it was a very powerful class because it really inspired you to really say, what is it that I want? Yes. And work weekly on you know things and saying, when we'd go through different courses, which change from business mastery to personal development, relationships, and and then uh, we, we were writing down what we were doing and documenting all the things that were changing in our life because we had this new belief that we could have it all. And so there was a few winners at the end of the course, and I think there was five, five total winners. And of course, I was one of them. Hmm. And one of them was, I was, was going to write a book, and I re- finished my book, um, my book that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And so that was really expo- and started me on my path too, because it showed me that, you know, if I just look for what I want... The right teachers will show up when I need them. And so that was kind of my path, even though it wasn't shamanism. It was like, if I get my mind involved and will follow my dream, I just have to trust God or trust the universe that it's going to lead me to the right path. And so from there, I started dabbling in Hay House you know, work and seeing her. I went to her Hay House conferences, and there's a lot of mystics there. And I met Sonia Chukwet, who mm. was one of my earlier favorites and she was all about you know um, your spirit guides and mm-hmm. understanding what spirit guides were and she even talked about runners and that's one of my favorites it's about connecting to these runners on the land and there's these spirits that will help you find a parking space mm, right so yeah. if you're going to the mall you say okay runners i'm going to the mall can you find me a space and boom there's a spot so it's almost like these spirits are just waiting to have fun and they're waiting for someone to talk to and connect to and if you're the one they're like oh gosh someone's listening we'll make there a spot for that girl because no one else is paying attention to yes. us. <laughs> I find the same thing with, with plants. Right. They, uh, a number of times, they, they have said, what's happened to your people? They used to talk to us all the time. Right. And I usually say, I'm sorry, they fell asleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> fell Isn't asleep. it the truth, though? And the more you talk to them, the more they talk back, and you're like, yeah. oh my gosh, this is a busy world we're living in, we're not even aware. <laughs> So that was kind of my path as the early start of it. And then from there, I learned of another author. author. I started doing energy medicine, and I really learned about a lot of skills that. I did a course for about a year. 
Um, but then, um, I don't want to name her, say her name, but that particular teacher, I felt like when I met her at the initial year, um, she was a very powerful teacher. In the course of the year, I felt like she started working with dark entities. Like mm-hmm. her energy shifted. And I don't know if she's that way now, but it was early in her career. And I remember going to her workshop and I wanted to sit real close to her because I'm really good about feeling energy. I've always had that gift of feeling buzz from stones or crystals or people who, like you've usually a lot of you are around a guru, they have a buzz of vibration about them. And so I always like to feel that vibrational buzz that that person is emitting. So I sat in the very front row because I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen her in a while. I want to feel that buzz. And unfortunately, this it was a year later, I was sitting in the row and it was the buzz was so strong. It was like I drank a, like a whole pot of coffee. It was just mm. buzzing me, like my thyroid was overstimulated. And I was just like, this is not comfortable. It was like, just like you're jacked up on speed or something. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh gosh, and I was, this is the opposite of what you think of a mentor. Mm-hmm. You want a calm presence. Yeah. You know, and, it, and so I remember even in class, I was coughing and I was like, oh, oh something's up. And and then apparently I was, my energy was affecting her and she was like, somebody, somebody in the front row, they're, there's, you know, you're doing something. And I'm like, you know, I was kind of like, what is she talking about? But she could feel my energy and hers working together. And, and she kind of freaked me out because she would pull energy out of people. And she was like, oh, this person's working with this guide. And she would talk about the energy of like Michael, you know, you know the mm-hmm. archangel. And, yeah. and then one time there was this girl came up and she had this very beautiful energy about her. And she says, oh, she's working with the Christ light. And I'm like, yeah, that feels like Christ energy. That mm-hmm. could be it. And But then what she did is she was, I'm going to pull this energy out and take it from her. And I was like, what? And she, Why would she do that? Well, it was bizarre. But as she went to pull it out, the energy dropped. And she went, proceeded to walk around the room with her arms out like this and goes, I'm going to heal all of you with this energy. And it was not present. And I, I don't know if anybody else felt it, but I'm like, do you guys feel that? The energy's gone. Yeah. And the placebo effects and people are like, oh, yes, I'm feeling it. I'm like, it was just like, Psh. Yeah. And so I was like, whoa, I don't know what's going on with this girl, but I don't like it. Mm-hmm. So in this class, one of the things she said is, "Oh, I used to. I went to mystery school and I dropped out. I went to mystery school and I dropped out, and I, you know, I got kicked out or whatever." She said, mm-hmm. and all I remember thinking is, "I'm here for a reason. I want to go to mystery school." Mm. Now I had no idea about what mystery school was, but because she got dropped out of it, and I could feel this energy about this woman, I thought, "I'm going." Mm. I'm so going. And so I remember right when that course ended, I went online, looked up mystery school and I found nine gates mystery school and I signed up and I was like, and I just signed up and I was in, joined the next course. And I remember when I went there, the teachers were like, well, how did you hear about us? Because as an esoteric school, you usually have it. It's usually, you know, brought by word of mouth. Right. You, they don't, it's very uncommon that someone just signs up for this. So I told them my story and I said, I just wanted to go because she said she didn't like it. And they were just like, wow, that's amazing. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. Well, even though there's, I'm going to segue a little from my list of questions that I wrote to try to keep me from wandering all over the place. So I'm going to do a typical Paul check on you here. I've studied, as I said, a lot of stuff on shamanism and right behind you on the library shelf was a very comprehensive book by Marcel Eliade, who probably wrote some of the most extensive research into shaman and then of course joseph campbell looked into them quite a lot and um, wrote a lot of stuff but one of the things that was a fairly consistent theme in the study of shaman worldwide is the use of magic and you know 
there's two kinds of magic. There's the magic where you work with spirit um, through intention and awareness to manifest, but there's also sleight of hand magic, like the typical magic of someone pulling a rabbit out of a hat or a coin out of your ear. And when you're describing this woman, it sounds to me like she was using sleight of hand magic, which, as you said, induces a placebo effect, but because you're sensitive enough to feel the energetic reality beneath the show, it sounds to me like you picked it up. So, the the question coming out of that near exposure to shaman of, of, of all various types, how much do you feel the magic of sleight of hand? For example, shaman often wear masks and costumes. In fact, some in some cultures, the shaman stay completely away from the people, so they don't have uh, they have minimal, if any, interaction with them because their their feeling was is it it lo- they lose the mystique, the power of the kind of invisible and the unknown. So when you look at shamanism and you say, okay, well, there's the power of the magic, the mystique, the unknown, which includes sleight of hand, and a lot of the shaman that are referred to as coyotes or tricksters also use that kind of magic. But at the end of the day, if somebody heals. It doesn't really matter, but I'm just curious in your experience, how how much sleight of hand magic is there versus um, intentional magic done with skill? Yeah, well, I'm sure there's, you know, a lot of the sleight of magic you're talking about, like rabbit pulling, you know, a lot of people, it's the placebo effect, just like we'd say 60% of any drug, the the placebo effect is that people will be cured, 60% of the population by taking a placebo will have a positive effect because they believe it's going to work. So I think there is a lot of validity to that. Um, But if you're really into feeling, like I am very sensitive, I can feel the difference between the two when someone's authentically working on someone and when someone is... Just pulling rabbits out of their butt. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite magical. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's, but that experience led me to so many different um, connections. And so, you know, it was one as awareness of being authentic and saying, you know, because this woman clearly had power. Like when I m- met her, there was no doubt I could feel when she worked through me working on my chakras. Like she could almost lift my body off the ground. She was Mm. so powerful. So indeed, she knew how to work with both sides. Mm. Um, I just felt that over time, she was so desperate to gain power Mm -hmm. that she was attaching herself to negative entities Mm -hmm. to get that. And it changed her energy dramatically. And so the caution to me on my early years of my path is don't let your ego get involved and recognize that when you're working with someone and doing a healing, that the healing is meant to allow the person to heal if it's the right thing for that person to be doing, not to be some magical source or take everybody's pain away. Yeah. And so realizing that not to get attached to the outcome of the work I'm doing, meaning do your best, connect to guides, um, perform what needs to be done, but then let that person decide what's going to happen, meaning let their body not force a positive outcome saying, oh, they have to heal because I'm so amazing. And realize that, you know, you have to detach yourself from that outcome and say, Mm -hmm. whatever happens to them is the right outcome for them, because maybe they need to have this illness a little longer Mm -hmm. so that they actually learn from it. Well, you you mentioned something again, that's triggering me to go off wandering, but that's okay. Um, You mentioned uh, that as I interpret it, that shaman often take people's pain away. 
and I've seen plenty of that going on. Um, once I was teaching a uh, Czech four quadrant coaching mastery in England, and I think you were there with me, weren't you? Possibly. And, yeah, when we were at the farm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And one of the participants had just spent four months in the jungle in an internship with uh, a tribal shaman. And, and one of the things that I said in the class is that one of the challenges that I see with traditional shamanic approaches is that they're often taking people's pain away without actually addressing the beliefs and the behaviors that caused it. And he came up to me on a break and he said, you know, what you're saying is, is totally true in my experience. He says, I see the same people coming to the shaman with the same problems over and over again. And that's why I really like what you're teaching here because it helps us really get to the core of it. So when you were in shaman school and doing your training, how did they how did they handle the issue of getting to root issues versus symptomatic relief? You know, um that wasn't totally discussed like what what was going to happen and if a person gets ill again, but we they did teach us methods to say will you is your healing going to be effective on that person so you can um you know work with nature to um, ask for divination to say will is this person having a healing or or do they need additional work and often um you'll see either yes that was successful and you don't need to do anything else with this person or no this person needs more work um but as you say it's nice to have other modalities just besides shamanism because in shamanism all you're trained to do or what you know to do is do more energetic work or put more power in them and hope that they heal. And then if their power drops, add more power to them. But that kind of leaves them open to, well, how do they get more power on their own if they're obviously losing power? Yeah. And so that's when the check training is really fantastic to work you know, with this because now we can teach them how to eat right and move right and sleep right and you know think right and yeah. all these things that are necessary for them to truly heal. And I think that the shamans don't have that skill, and some of them might have it, you know, just intuitively. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we're teaching them how oh, just put fill them with power. They fill them with power, then they get sick again because they lose their energy, and they come back, and you fill them with more power. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's what they're trained to do. It, that sort of leads to codependency on the shaman, unfortunately, which is no different in many ways than going to a doctor for another drug. Or you know, uh, and whatever form of magic the practitioner is using, and and as you know, the placebo is very powerful. But uh, but placebos don't cure uh, causes; they address symptoms. Right. So, yeah, I think these are the reasons I'm asking these. I think you know, in a discussion of modern shamanism, the reason I titled this modern shamanism is I consider myself a, a modern shaman, and and. Uh, you know, your description of a shaman was really very accurate to how I live, as mm-hmm. you well know. But the um, what I found working with shaman and and studying shaman and all things related is that we have so much good science, like studies of uh, psi phenomenon. We have an entire parapsychology science now, even though a lot of left-brain thinkers deny it, but the science is as good as any science, and it's got a lot of the top scientists in the world, and there's very legitimate organizations. And as you know, I've got volumes of research and all this stuff, so I try to 
base my opinions on solid research wherever possible, and there is a lot of great stuff. But when I worked with people, and many people that have been to shaman and had temporary cures for this or that, and gone back to the jungle with or without drugs, ended up having to come to me and say, you know, this is what's going on. And, you know, lo and behold, it's things like, I'm staying up too late at night, I don't know how to eat well, I've got unresolved trauma from childhood, um, dot, dot, dot. And I also studied a fair bit of Arnold Mendel's work, who is a Jungian psychologist and a, and a shaman and a very, very powerful guy who integrates a lot of techniques. And I found that when I practice what I would call shamanism, which is really using everything I teach in the Czech Institute with shamanic ideas and healing ceremonies and plant medicines where relevant and, and ideal, um, that it's a, it's, it's a much more comprehensive system because you have to have good knowledge of how do you use exercise, how do you assess movement and breathing, uh, how do you look at diet and lifestyle factors, what are the issues of things like um, infant attachment syndromes, trauma, and I do past life regressions and a lot of the stuff that you do, but you know, for me, as a first as a human being, second as a, a therapist, third as the founder of an institute, it's always been very important for me that my students not run off and play with the CDs, as they're called, the magical powers, because many of them go get addicted on, oh, I can make this happen, or I can make that happen, or whatever it might be. But I wanted to create a system that integrated a toolbox of things that really address the most important issues, but also knowing the power of shamanism and the kinds of things that people learn in mystery schools and things like touch for health and a wide variety of those types of techniques. I've always encouraged my students to master the basics, but follow your heart and your soul and go learn the things that spirit wants you to learn to fulfill the soul contracts because there are people coming towards you and generally, like you found, when you're drawn towards something, it's usually a message from spirit to say, this is something you need because there are people coming your way that need that help. So it, it, uh, it sounds to me like you've sort of naturally grown into what I would call a modern shaman and that you don't just always use the drum or uh, rattles or... Uh, chance or whatever it could be, although I've seen you work with clients, and I know you you do do that, but it seems to me that you yourself have come to your own orientation of what I call modern shaman's toolkit. Right. It's like having a toolbox, and um, all the teachers I've learned something from, I may not use all their tools, but mm -hmm. I have pulled some and say, these are the tools that work with me very well in my program and in the way I like to work. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so now I have this toolbox of ways to resources to work with a client. So 
you know, you're not just saying, oh, I only know how to take care of a person this way. It's like, yes. no, I can teach him how I'm a nutritionist. I can teach him about nutrition. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Now you also know about the body. I can teach him an exercise program. Oh, okay. Yeah. And now I can teach him about thinking properly. Oh, now they maybe need to do some shamanic rumming, you know, drumming or rattling or something to help energetically fill them up with you know, spirit, you know? So mm-hmm. there's all these different realms. So, you know, that's what's the beauty of this. So every client is unique. And so there's no cookie cutter program in my system. It's like everybody I look at as a person individually, mm-hmm. regardless of their illness and their past history and say, what does this person coming to with their situation need the most? Yeah. And so that's what's the beauty about it. So it's like you're, you're always thinking outside the box. One of the things that I see in, in probably most of my clients, you know, close to all of them is what I refer to as rhythm disruption. Uh, So rhythm disruption, most common one is being out of balance with the circadian rhythm, such Mm -hmm. as staying up too late at night. And then your hormonal system gets out of balance with the natural cycles of nature. Another rhythm dysfunction that's very common is a breathing pattern disorder. So a person's either hyper or hypoventilating uh, other rhythm dysfunctions are skipping meals and not having a a consistent rhythm to when we work, when we rest, when we eat, uh, when we sleep, um, which all of those lead to disruption in the rhythms of biological oscillators, brain, heart, gut. And I've found that in in, in many cases, what I do the, the patients often don't know that I'm doing it, but I have them, one of my first assignments is to sing the four doctor songs four times each day and rattle to them. But what I'm really doing is in training their rhythms by getting their voice, their breath, and their mind, which is all part of their body, inher- inherently woven into the body, into a rhythmic structure and it, and and i've also given people specific exercises with drumming or rattling or uh rhythmic exercise how much do you feel that drums and rattles and those types of shamanic tools are actually addressing what i'm here describing as a rhythm disorder oh absolutely and so a lot of times if a client comes into me and they're frazzled from the day or and you know, they come in just stressed out and driving and late to their appointments, getting them to rattle with me. Even if you're not even singing, just get them to rattle because some people are like, I don't want to sing. Okay, well, just rattle with me. That mm-hmm. sets them in a rhythm and then I can calm them down and then they're ready to learn because, mm-hmm. you know, when we're in fight or flight mode, we can't learn new information. No. And so getting them to chant if you can or rattle or drum really calms the mind down and now they're receptive to learning. Yes. So absolutely, that's a great tool. Well, Angie, I know I kind of took us on a segue, but I don't think you got to finish your path of development through mystery schools and into shamanism. Did you want to share more about that? Yeah. So, you know, during that, um, my path, it, it was, it wasn't just shamanism, but like I said, it was energy medicine. I actually, during that time, also met a yogi. His name is Yogi Rush, Guru mm-hmm. Nath Siddhanath, and he was from India and he taught me the Kriya Yoga. And I also felt that was a very powerful aspect of my development because mm-hmm. I learned, and I had dabbled with meditation before. I did things like center point meditation, and that's where you listen to CDs and it takes you deeper and deeper into theta and mm-hmm. you know d- different um, states of consciousness. But working with the yogi, I really felt that really 
pushed, catapulted me into a higher dimension because he trained me how to stay awake while dreaming. And I think that was a key point to really doing shamanic work because I think today's day and age, we have a, you know, two modes, go and sleep. Mm-hmm. Go, 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 and fall asleep. And it's really hard for people to stay conscious and aware when they're resting. Mm-hmm. It's they don't have that capacity. And through meditation, I learned how to be present and conscious while being very still. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really the reason that when I eventually started dabbling into shamanism, I really started having some prolific experiences right off the, out the gate. And people were looking at me like, oh my gosh, how is she having all these kind of experiences? Mm-hmm. And at first I just thought it, everybody did. And then I realized, well, it's not that I'm special in a way. It's like, what is different about me? And I realized it was my ability to be able to stay awake while dreaming. Yeah. And so you're in that dreamlike state, you know, and you're in that, un, you know, that conscious state, you know, you're unconscious, but conscious, altered state of consciousness, as they say, you really need to be able to see. And so a lot of people, when they start doing this work, they're like, I just see darkness. Right. I can't see any images. I don't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I saw a, a, some kind of fluttering or I heard of some word, but they can't really get clear images. And so I think a lot of that, one, was having a good diet, you know, eating right, because it's like having a, a good spiritual antenna. Yeah. We talk about posture and mm-hmm. all those things that I've learned through your, the Czech Institute. But then being able to be sit still so you can see the image. Yeah. And so that was a pivotal part in my journey is to meet that yogi and to see the potentials of the mind and being able to, you know, he did shape shifting and things that I didn't had never seen before, was never aware of, maybe read about in a book once, but really be able to see that with my own eyes and realize the power of meditation. He went, wow, this is very real. Um, then from there, I went to, um, I went to mystery school, as we talked about. I met some great teachers there and learned about uh, the chakras and how to work on different uh, levels of healing the body, mm-hmm. Le- you know, working at the root chakra, the second chakra, third. So nine gates means the really nine chakras. Mm-hmm. They break the heart into two chakras, and then we go up eight and nine past the body. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really was amazing to learn these different modalities and they had teachers from all over the world mm-hmm. and so i wasn't just learning stuff here you know in the western world but they would bring teachers from indigenous cultures and talk about grieving ceremonies and things that we're not familiar with in this you know in our country it's like what grieve no you know suck it up and be a man you know yeah. and so all these things were really important to see these different ways of healing the body and then from there i went to shaman school and that's like i said it was just like I'd learn something or I'd read something, and I'm like, what's that? Oh, I'll read a book. And I remember, I don't know how it fell in my lap, but The Way of the Shaman one day was in my lap. And I was like, I need to read this book. Mm-hmm. And that's Michael Harner's book. Right. Okay. And good. so when I got that book, it was like a, a calling. It was like I, I strongly knew that not only did I need to read this, but I need to study it. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't just read it cover to cover. I actually stopped, took notes. And then when he said there was an exercise... I did the exercise, and oftentimes I did it multiple times to really understand what he was trying to get at. So I bought the CDs. He says, get a drum sound and make sure it's the right drum beat. So I went to his website, downloaded the right drumming things, and practice, practice, practice. So in addition to meditating, I was practicing these, you know, how to go into these different worlds. And so when I did eventually go to a shaman school, you know, it was just like the, I had these, like I said, out of these world experiences. Yeah. And that's when I went, wow, I need to study this more. So um, at the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, they have weekend workshops. And so I took all these weekend workshops and I really enjoyed it. And then they said to me, by the way, if you really like this work, you can apply for the three-year program. 
So you had to take so many weekend workshops, and then you had to, they have a panel of shaman that work for the school. And when you decide you want to learn at this advanced level, you actually um, submit an application, and then the shaman actually chant, rattle, who knows what they do to see and talk to their guides to see if you're ready for this kind of work. Right. And then when they decide that you're ready, that they, they vote and then they say, yes, you're permitted to come into the school. Mm-hmm. So it's a very sacred honor to be able to be allowed into this, this course. Um, they may, you have to be mentally, physically, spiritually re- ready for that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And so that was a three year t- training. So I was really excited to be in that. And so that's kind of brought me to kind of where I'm at now. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things you mentioned is how people working in shamanic training or practices have a hard time seeing anything. And having, because I do a lot of these types of exercises with my clients or patients, and one of the things that I've noticed is that people are so... uh, oriented to their five senses, that they have a very hard time connecting to or perceiving anything that's not coming from outside of them. For example, I can look at you and see you sitting in front of me. I can watch a television. I can hear uh, someone knocking at the door. But until a person practices working with what I refer to as non-sensory information, um, that's not nonsense in the sense of nonsense, (laughs) it's um, you know, for example, when you have a dream at night, there's no, there's no sound outside of you. There's no one knocking at the door. You're not watching the television. You're looking inside yourself, and a dream happens unconsciously. But the, the, the work that a shaman does is to actually use consciously directed dreaming with intention. And I think our culture is so terribly externalized and... You know, one of the key questions that a shaman asks you is, when did you stop enjoying being alone with yourself? Mm-hmm. And it seems like we have a almost a worldwide culture now that has a real problem with not only silence, but being with themselves. So it makes it very hard for them to, and I've had many people even accuse me that I was uh, fraudulent or whatever because they couldn't see the images that I was describing or that other people in the class were describing, but they don't realize it. it's just that they're – it's like learning to juggle. If you don't practice, you're not going to learn. But the first thing you've got to do to practice this kind of juggling is you've got to practice quieting your mind and learning not to get attached into your senses and your ego – and it seems like that's a real barrier. Would would you agree with that observation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's how you how do you teach that? Well, you have to teach them how to be still, and that's you know, and that's why I think meditation is a really good way to learn stillness. Um, but it's so hard these days. Cause there's a buzz everywhere. You know, you feel the buzz of the Wi-Fi, and people don't even feel that. And so we're constantly bombarded with all this external stimuli. It's like, how do you feel anything subtle when there's so much other stuff going on around them? Yes, that's one of the main reasons why, aside from the obvious reasons of teaching Tai Chi, Qigong, and work in type exercises, Absolutely. but that's why in HLC2, I offer the students a gong. Mm-hmm. Because I know if they cannot commit to at least 20 minutes a day for 100 consecutive days, they'll never have the discipline to develop these 
well, extrasensory abilities beyond the senses. Right. And therefore, they're always limited to physical information. But in my model, physical information is generally after the fact, right? It's the belief that drives the behavior, which results in the injury or the argument or the car crash, uh, etc. But to get to the core, one has to go to the belief and the source of the belief, which isn't a physical reality. It's a mental reality or even a, uh, you know, it's contained in the reality of spirit, which is all things. So in your, in your journey and looking now at, at having worked with so many shaman, when you look back on your own life from here, if you had to describe now looking back in retrospect what were the events in your life even painful events that ultimately created the path for you that if you you can look back and say if this hadn't happened to me i wouldn't have had the urge to learn this and that wouldn't have led me to this place which then wouldn't have led me to that place and that, that's a question that I'm weaving into the next question, which is how do people – what are some tips that people um, can be aware of that suggest maybe they are actually being called into the shamanic path? Uh, because, for example, I've, ha- I've had many people going through significant psychological traumas like schizophrenia and other things, and I intuitively sense or connect to their soul and say you're being called into a shamanic path and this is – this is this is your homework. Yeah, you know, they say a lot of people in mental hospitals, you know, and halfway <laughs> institutes are actually shaman. They just don't know how to understand it. Oh, you oh, you say in you, mental hospitals. In mental. I yeah. thought you said a lot of people are mental no, hospitals. No, no, I'm no. Like, yes, they are. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Full I, hospitals. Right. No, I'm saying that there, there's a lot of people that are classified as crazy. And yes. reality is they are hearing voices and they don't know what to do about it. Right. So they're like, oh, they must be insane. They're nuts. They're, you know, but the, really mm. they might be shaman without any proper training. Yes. And so, you know, if you're hearing voices or you're thinking you're hearing, oh, it's in my head or I'm seeing people and no one else sees these people, well, that's an indication that you have a gift that mm-hmm. you can see beyond the normal reality. Yeah. And so, you know, as a child, I had all sorts of visions and things that were happening to me. And I mean, just even like what you were talking, I don't, it just popped in my head. It was just something that was subtle, but I remember it was a profound moment. Uh, one time I was just a little girl, maybe five years old, and I opened up the closet and there was these steel darts that were on the top of the uh, closet. My brother had been playing with them or something, but when I opened up the closet, they were falling down. And these are the ones with the pointy tips, like really not plastic tip darts. The razor sharp ones. Yeah. And I saw them and I, they were coming straight towards me and I went, and they, I was expecting them to hit me, but I didn't move. And they went right down and landed right between my feet. And I can't explain it, but I just felt like there was some force that protected me. Mm-hmm. And I was like that, there was no reason why those darts shouldn't have hit me and mm-hmm. punctured me in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and I just kind of thought, I'm just going to stand still. And, and, and it was like something, and there was another particular moment, but I remember that age, I'm like, I, was that God helping me? There was some force that protect me from being injured. Mm-hmm. And another event when I was in high school, I remember I was in a, um, a car with my friend and she was driving very, very fast on the freeway. And we were going down this hill and it was raining 
terribly. And so it was like the first rain, you know, how the roads are very slick. And she was going about 85 miles per hour. And I was like, hey, slow down. You know, we're going to get an accident. The roads are slick right now. There's oil on the roads. And I know, but I want to get home. I want to get home. I said, slow down. It was late at night and I was kind of dozing off and I was watching her drive. And I kept saying, hey, slow down. Well, the next thing I know, we're hydroplaning on the freeway. Mm. And she had lost control of her car and it started to spin across the highway. And this is like a six lane highway. Yeah. And I'm, we're seeing, and I, all of a sudden I was like, I, I was like, oh my gosh. And I, I, she, we almost hit the center divider and she pushed on her steering wheel and it brought us into another spin the opposite way. And it was one of the scariest moments of my life because as we're spinning, I see these headlights coming at us. Oh, yeah. So we're spinning, headlights, spinning, headlights, spinning, headlights, and these headlights are getting closer and closer. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so I'm holding on to that, as they call it, the oh, shit grip. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like holding on, and, and, we're, and then I thought, okay, we made it. And by the grace of God, across the freeway, people had slowed down enough to see that we were out of control and they were stopping. But we were still going too fast, and we were going over the side, which was a ravine. Wow. And at this moment, I thought... I can't drive the car, so I just went, God, help us. <laughs> and I'm no kidding. The car felt like someone just picked it up and put it right next to the, the, the railing, the guardrail. Mm. It just like our car just literally felt like you're in a toy car and someone just went. And I looked at her and looked at her and I'm like, we're dead, right? Because I mean, it was just so, it was so calm. And mm-hmm. it was such a, like we were to a complete stop. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we must be dead. And I remember I had, was back in the day and you didn't really have cell phones, but my brother worked in the cell phone industry and I had this big brick of a phone that you connected to the cigarette adapter. Yeah. I'm like, let me call my boyfriend at the time because I thought I need to talk to someone living because mm-hmm. I need to make sure I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, oh my goodness. But I felt this divine presence in my life. Like I called on God. I was like, I know I'm going to die if I don't get help right now. And it was like this bink. And I was like, that. so that was another moment where I said, you know what? There's something greater than us that exists. Yeah. And if you call on it, it can help you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I even had another profound experience in shaman school, which I can't tell you the details of because it's confidential stuff we did. Mm-hmm. But where you feel like there's a moment where you're struggling and if you don't get help, you could die. Mm-hmm. And having the, the guides and the spirit helpers help you uh, get free. Mm-hmm. And I had that moment too, where I was like, oh my goodness, there was no physical way I could do this, but by the help of your guides, this was possible. And I realized we need to be talking to these guides and talking to God all the time because there's help here all the time and they're just waiting for us and they can't help us unless you they ask, you know? But um, those are some of the moments where I felt there was definitely something guiding us. There's definitely something here. But as a child, I remember having visions. I remember a, a simple story where it was actually scary to me because my grandmother had this friend, and I was maybe six or seven at this time. And I remember I was at the kitchen table, and I was coloring. And she came downstairs, and she was very worried. And she says, oh, I'm so worried about my friend. She knows she's not feeling well. And I stopped, and I had this vision. I said, Oh, Grandma, she's going to die next week. Wow. And she looked at me. She's, that's a horrible thing to say. You take that back. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. She goes, you never say that about anyone. She, and she stormed out of the room. And I was like, and I was just coloring. Well, lo and behold, her friend did die the next week. Mm-hmm. And so my grandmother thought that she, it was really sad. She came up to me and she said, she, in some way, because it was her best friend, in her you know, upsetness of her friend dying, blamed me for the death. She mm-hmm. said, you killed her. And I'm like, what? She goes, you said she would die, and she did. And so that was when I kind of shut this off as a child. I thought, oh, I must have done something wrong Mm -hmm. because we were very Catholic, and this was, you know, you can't foresee the future. And so it was like, 
she, you know, my grandmother at times referenced me as Satan because mm-hmm. some of the things that came out of my mouth that I shouldn't know that I did. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of shut it down as a child. I was remember saying, this is not good. This is not what God wants because if people were very fearful of this knowledge. Um, so, but I had visions strongly. I remember, you know, just simple things. I mean, just out of the blue where you would, it's just ordinary life where I'd stop in my reality and I'd see a vision in front of me of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, one very clearly, I mean, it was about eight or nine years old. And my mom says, go to the satellite market and buy yourself a notebook for school. I'm cooking. Take your brother with you and go on your bikes. I'm like, okay. So she gave me some money. And as we're walking to the garage, I had this vision of my brother carrying the notebook in the bag, falling over the railroad tracks and the cover of the notebook being ripped off. And I remember just seeing it so clearly that I paused. My brother's like, what are you doing? Come on, let's go. Why are you sitting there for? I'm like, oh, no reason. And I got and went to the garage and we rode on our bikes. So we got to the store and after just, just as I saw my vision, he says, give me your notebook. I'll carry it for you. I said, no, no, I'll carry it. He goes, what's the big deal? He goes, I said, I'll carry it. I said, no, no, I want to carry my notebook. He's like, whatever. So we're riding our bikes home and right where I had saw the vision, he fell on the railroad tracks Mm. and I'm sitting there going, and he's looking at me like, what the hell is your problem? Why are you just staring at me like that? But I had, I didn't want to tell him what I saw and how, Mm -hmm. so I'm like, nothing, nothing, you know? And I was just like flabbergasted that I saw this, but the only difference was I was carrying my notebook. And so my notebook was intact. Mm -hmm. And I realized that we can see the future and and sometimes we can control our destiny by our choices we make. And I realized, Mm -hmm. wow, that's a profound moment where I could see something that could alter the the future by, Mm -hmm. you know, by consciously seeing and saying, I'm choosing something else which was wild to me. Yes. You know, you've used the word spirits many times now, and I'm sure there's probably a a collection of people at least listening to this thinking in their head, what in the hell is a spirit? (laughs) So maybe you can shed some light on that, because that, especially for the left brain and brain dominant scientific materialist uninitiated types, it seems just like uh, hocus pocus. Okay. Well, you know, spirit is, I classified it as a group word, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because spirit could be um, guides, people who've passed on, loved ones, ancestors that are there to help you. Uh, it could be angels, you know, uh, archangels, um, anybody in the healing industry that's lived before or, nev- or never lived, but came here as in their purpose is to help people heal on mm-hmm. the planet. Uh, so a, a, a spirit can entail all of these beings, mm-hmm. um, animal guides, all of this can be a spirit. And so they're, they're here to help us. And so uh, obviously you can't see them with your regular eyes, but you can sometimes feel them, mm-hmm. you know? And so sometimes you'll feel like calmness. All of a sudden you might be in distraught and all of a sudden you get this wave of calming of your body. That can be spirit coming to you and calming you. It could be a healer. It could be a loved one. Uh, it could be your mother if she's passed on, someone who you know who's giving you some insight or help, helping you heal or comforting you in certain times of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think angels are? Uh, angel, angels are just, uh, it could be um, higher vibrational you know, um, entities, I guess you would say. So ne- not necessarily uh, a, a person who's been on the planet, but um, 
godlike or you know in that um, angelic realm, which means um, higher consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I see angels as. So mm-hmm. sometimes we have angels come to the earth to help us. And so you know, Sonia Chiquette talks a lot about angels, about sometimes, and we've all had these experiences where you meet the right person, they say the right thing to you, and it changes your life completely. And then you go, where was that person? The person's gone. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that might be an angel that just showed up to give you a message. And so, you know, some, these are usually maybe have had a human body, but usually show up in a human form to guide you at a certain time in your life. Yeah. Uh, there's a book for those that might be interested. I think it's either called, I think it's called The Physics of Angels by Rupert Sheldrake and Matthew Fox, which is quite interesting that I uh, read and listened to. I think it's also available in audiobook. So if you're interested in angels, The Physics of Angels by Matthew Fox and Rupert Sheldrake, um, I, I used to, you know, I never denied or doubted that angels were real because, you know, as you know, my mother was a Christian before she became a yogi, so the concept of angels is pretty heavy in Christianity. But I'll never forget the first time I had angels show up at a healing I was doing in, in HLC2, and I've had several very profound experiences with angels. And it was almost like spirit wanted to reassure me that I wasn't nuts because in each one of these events, it was a healing that I was conducting for someone in a class or someone that had came to me for help, but there was other people there, sometimes 20, 30, 40 other people or more. And each time, at least three other people came to me, usually in tears and in shock, asking me, oh my God, Paul, did you see? And they would describe exactly what I was seeing. So what I found is it's the people that have the openness to perceive with the non-sensory reality that that you were talking about earlier. But I I really, uh, I, I, all of those experiences created a, a shift in me, like mm-hmm. something, it's hard to describe, but something happened that changed changes you forever and i don't think you can ever adapt to the presence of an angel meaning it's not oh just another angel <laughs> i mean when an angel when angels are around and each of my experience there was lots of angels mm-hmm. one one time it, it, i was doing a healing for a girl with a really sort of a sad sad kind of a crisis situation she had acquired a pretty serious sexually transmitted disease mm. um, and certainly wasn't something that she was ever interested in. And it just was one of those sad things. And she didn't know really what was going on. So she was getting very unhealthy and came to me and, and I conducted a healing ceremony and I'm going through my ritual, my prayer, my asking for guidance from her soul, my soul and, and the things that I do internally and all of a sudden, I just felt the whole room shift, and I looked up, and there was a, a literal league of angels that were like I've never seen before. I would describe them as warrior angels. They they had helmets on, and they had very wow. big swords, and they were in formation, and they were in like a triangular a V formation with the two lead angels and the interesting thing one was male and all the angels behind him were male 
The other was female, and all the angels behind him were female. And these angels, when I was doing the ceremony in your bedroom. Okay. That's now your bedroom. Mm-hmm. And these things went off to infinity. They went as far as I could perceive. I mean, it was like when I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, and we did marches as the whole 82nd. There's 16,000 of us marching at a time, and it's a very powerful experience. But it was as though I was in the presence of a vast sea of angels. And it's been many years now, and I said to them, why are you here? And they said, I won't mention the person's name, but they said, we are here to support her because we are the angels of, one was the angels of justice, and the other one group was the angel of, I can't remember what they said, but they represented the archetype. One, The men were the archetype of justice, and the women, I think, were the archetype of courage. And we've come to support her because this, in essence, they were saying this wasn't meant to be part of her life plan or it it was something that she didn't karmically deserve. So they came to help me help her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, you know, I won't bore you with all the other details, but I'm just, I wanted to expand on that for people listening. Yeah. So how did she feel when, with the healing? Did she? Well, it definitely made a big shift in her. Um, as is often the case though, the whole predicament that she got herself into was indicative of behaviors emanating from things like traumatic childhood, mm-hmm. um, abandonment type issues, victim behavior, and um, someone who really was reaching for the comforts and the intimacy with another uh to compensate for a lack of comfort, presence, and intimacy with herself. So um, the the healing work helped. We I, I, I looked into her clairvoyantly and saw, uh, basically I saw um, what looked like uh, quite a bit of foreign uh, bacteria in her, in her uterus. Mm. And and lo and behold, I said, you need to go get this looked at. And they did identify that she had a pretty bad STD. And um, so she she continued to do some work with me. And she's still growing and learning. But yes, I think I think that they it made a significant shift. Did it completely eliminate it? No, because the roots of that were more. In other words, the STD event was really just sort of a product of the unconscious behaviors, which is where the real healing was needed to be done. But I think the angel's presence may have, uh, it may have resulted in changing the outcome significantly to where she could have been much sicker or even disabled Mm because it was a pretty nasty situation. Mm. But um, one of the things that I wanted to ask is, if you could sort of give some generalizations, what are some things that someone might consider seeing a shaman for versus maybe things that might not be ideal to see a shaman for? You know, pretty much anything can be seen with a shaman, especially if you've tried lots of avenues and you haven't had results or success. 
like you said, we see the body different. So we don't identify and go, oh, that's osteoporosis or oh, that's cancer. But we might see some entity in the body. You know, mm-hmm. we might see some energetic something in them that doesn't belong. And so then we can work on a healing on that. So they may not know where to look. And so energetically, I can go in and say, this is coming from your lungs. Like you said, oh, it's coming from your uterus. Mm-hmm. And so we can help pinpoint energetically, like if someone who has a myriad of problems and says, I don't know where my health problem is coming from, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts, can you come in and look into my field and see what you see? And I think that's a great t- place for a shaman to energetically say, this is coming from your heart or wherever it is that it, they, they find it's coming from. Uh, you know, and I think that it's, uh, it's successful in many realms. I mean, I, there's, I can't pinpoint one that you would say, oh, that doesn't work for that. But I know that if a person's not open to this kind of work, it doesn't work. Um, for example, yeah. I've had um, like clients or even people who worked for me and they say, oh, let me, my spouse is here, do this on my spouse. And energetically, the spouse is just completely closed to that idea. Mm-hmm. And if they're not open to it, it's like reading a brick wall. Mm-hmm. They just shut themselves down. I'm like, until they're open, I can't see anything because you have to let me into your field. I can't just invite myself in per se. You know, someone can just, you know, and if they don't want that, you can, you know, there's this block and there's this gap. So I say, if you're going to see a shaman, be open to the possibility of anything. But if you have these preconceived ideas of what it is that you're going through and oh, it can't be this, it can't be that, then it can't be a shaman that helps you because the shaman's going to be seeing things in a different way. Which... Interesting, your your comment there pretty much does a nice job of proving free will is real. Right. Because you can actually use your own free will to reject healing. Yes. You can, and and it can go the other way too. You know, a lot of people today have a real, um, they have the same sort of anti-shamanistic behavior or anti-magic behavior or anti-woo-woo, but they have it toward medical doctors. Mm-hmm. and I mean, large is the number of people who have had so many challenges with medical doctors that when they come to me and I find out that, you know, they have cancer or something and they need to go see a medical doctor, they just flat out refuse. Um, I had a case not too long ago, uh, what, maybe five years ago now, where that's exactly what happened. But he'd already been unhealthy for a while and uh, went to see a lot of doctors, drugs, you know, the whole deal, and, and made him worse and worse and worse. But then when I identified it, I said to him, you really need to get to a cancer treatment center. He had uh, cancer of the thyroid, and it's notably an aggressive form of cancer. And he he had a budget, so he saw me, I wrote him his program, and I gave it to him, said, these are my suggestions. See, you know, I I, work, I did some research on cancer centers through Dr. Oliver and other people like that and found uh, centers he could go to in Europe where he was from. But then I ended up just intuitively feeling I should check in with him about six months later. I was actually out stacking rocks and all of a sudden I had this realization that this client wasn't doing what I asked him to do. So I got a hold of him and said, have you got yourself into a cancer treatment? And he said, no, I just can't bring myself to do it. I said, it's important that you do that immediately. I said, I have a strong intuition that you need to go do it. That's why I wrote it in your plan. I said, you've got to realize that a marriage of science and holistic health gives you the best of both worlds. But just because you've had bad experience with a doctor doesn't mean that all doctors are bad or that medicine doesn't have things to offer, such as 
uh, functional medicine testing, scans, whatever. Well, the long story short is he waited too long. Mm. And by the time he got to the cancer treatment center and went through intensive protocols and chemo and therapy, he was too far gone and he died. Mm. And it's it's an interesting thing because I actually have a mandala hanging on the wall here in the I house. I think I remember him. Yeah, that I... Mm -hmm. But I did with him and, and using my skills as an art therapist, I could see cancer was heavily prevalent in his body. Mm -hmm. And um, so the only point I'm making is, is the mind can work for you or against you. And it doesn't matter what direction you're going, whether you're going, I'm a traditionalist and it has to be weighable and measurable, or I don't believe it and shamanism's a bunch of bullshit, or you can get too out in the woods and reject. Mm -hmm. And that's really what modern shamanism to me means, you know, be aware of what works, what's the best thing for the person and apply that because we, you know, consciousness has obviously produced these tools for a reason. Mm -hmm. Like anything, it can be abused or it can be effectively used. I tell people there's no such thing as a bad drug, only an incorrectly prescribed drug. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as a bad exercise, only an incorrectly prescribed exercise. And, and there's free will again, we have to choose. So Angie, we, you know, we've talked a lot about shamanism and shaman, and, and you've made the point that there's really nothing that they can't be of some value to, even if it's identifying what's going on. Um, you know, there's many books, by the way, for those listening on, I've got books in my library uh, documenting profound structural changes in people working with energy workers or uh, various types of healers. So I really personally believe that uh, we do have the power and human beings have the power to heal anything. Hmm. Um, and there's now countless cases of spontaneous remission of cancers and uh, I was listening to watching a documentary recently. They're documenting a case where a woman had a brain tumor the size of an orange, and they didn't think she was going to live much longer. And uh, she just came to the realization that she wanted to live. And inside of her, she described how she just simply realized she had to change her internal relationship with herself and life. And she went and she just had that realization and made the shift in herself. And she went four days later, they'd done a brain scan on her. So they had an objective record. Four days later, she went, they had a brain scan done on her and the tumor was entirely gone. Mm. And it was such a shock to the doctors that they couldn't believe it. Like did the equipment malfunction, you know, right. but they found that it was absolutely gone. So, you know, I think shaman and healers of all types are very, very real um, but as you know, there's a wide range of skill levels, authenticity. So if you could give advice to people, let's say someone says, okay, I think I want to try shaman because what I've been trying hasn't worked. They go in the phone book or they start asking around, they find six of them within driving distance. How would you recommend they go about choosing a shaman? You know, I would say first, you know, call them and talk to them and see if there's some kind of connection to them. Yeah. I, you know, you have to feel safe. You have to feel able to open up to them, you know, and, and just like we ha we choose our friends, certain people just connect to us better than others. And so the first thing is to say, can I establish a connection? Do I feel safe? Do I feel like I can 
um, share what needs to be sh- uh, shared with this person. Um, you know, if you're feeling, you know, vulnerable or you're feeling like your, your energy is being pushed away when you're talking to them, that might be an indication they're not the right person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, listen to your gut feeling is what I'd say. And, you know, and, you know, ask questions about what um, kind of shamanic practices they do. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, I have my personal favorites that I feel I'm, I've really perfected. You know, I like to do soul retrievals and I do power animal uh, retrievals. And there's certain things, you know, I do extraction healings. And those are, you know, my forte. So finding out what their forte is and saying, you know, what kind of work do you do as a shaman? And if there's something that you feel drawn to, you know, so if someone says, oh, I'm doing soul retrieval, and that's something that you feel a little weird about and go, that's against my religion or whatever. uh, Obviously, that's probably not the right mode for you. Um, so find a, you know, if the shaman says I'm only doing psychedelic herbs and well, and if you're not feeling that's the path for you, that could be very scary and that could diminish your ability to heal. Mm -hmm. So finding then saying, what kind of work would you be doing together? I'd also say, you know, um, find someone that looks healthy with vitality because, um, you're, the person is giving you power. So they're bringing power in from either animal spirits or, you know, angelic spirits, but a person has to be healthy enough to bring in the power. Yes. So if they're sick and they're dull and they're lethargic, well, their ability to harness power is going to be very weak. Um, not always true. There's sometimes you see some shaman that are out of shape, but they're able to connect. But that might be an indicator saying, how is their life? Do they have vitality? Mm-hmm. Because a shaman, like the shamans I've worked with that are really good, they may be look frail. Like I have a teacher that was, she was in her 70s, maybe early 80s, and she looked frail. But when you she worked on you, the power that came through her was like, oh my gosh. It was mm-hmm. like, it, it wasn't an old woman at all. You know, it was just a very powerful existence, a presence. So she really knew how to harness the energy. And so, but she was very, you know, thin, but she was healthy, you know, and I think that's a key indicator is how healthy is that shaman? How clear are their thoughts? You know, if they're, you know, delusional or they're constantly on, you know, psychedelics or something, they're not ever in this world, that's hard for them to bring the energy, that information back. You know, Mm -hmm. a shaman needs to be able to be fully present in this world and present in the other world. And there's this balance between the two. So if they're too out of this consciousness, it's really hard to work with them as well. So, you know, finding someone that's able to work both worlds and communicate the information they're receiving from the other dimensions. You know, so that, those are just some things you want to look for and say, okay, I want someone who is at least fit and healthy, someone I feel has, can harness energy, who has vitality in them, someone I feel safe with, you know, and, and, and some kind of connection. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I've observed... Having, you know, of course, had thousands of students in my class, many of them that come from all sorts of backgrounds, from energy medicine to psychic abilities, etc. And of course, 57 years of life experience. But one of the things that I've observed is that a lot of people that do psychic work, healing work, like energy healing work and shamanism, uh, have found comfort in dealing with other people's problems and being out of their bodies. And they're not often very grounded people. And without somebody else to focus their energy on, they're probably not much better than most people at creating quiet within themselves, healing themselves, honoring themselves. And I think that that's uh, a challenge in and of itself, because I don't think a, a uh, a shaman can really, or a, a therapist or healer, can take you beyond their own level of development. 
Would you right. agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so it's just like with the, you know, Czech Institute, the philosophy is, you know, you can only teach what you already know, you know, so if you know how to tie your shoe, you can teach someone very easily how to tie your shoe, you know, but if you, if you, if you eat organic, you can teach that, but otherwise it's just a talking head, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, you have, you can't give what you don't already have. Mm-hmm. So if someone says, oh, and they got a big belly out to here, so let me give you six pack abs. Well, chances are they don't know how to, because otherwise they would have done it for themselves if that was so important. Yes. Know? One of the things I've dealt with a fair bit, I I try to shy away from it for a lot of different reasons, but I have certainly done a fair bit of it, and there's a lot of it out there, and that's entity possession. When you were in training, did they teach you how to deal with entity possession? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that, and what are some of the kinds of entities you've experienced? Yeah, so basically the thought is, and what we learned from in school, is that when you're not fully present in yourself, when you're not harnessing your full power, you know, we all have a power within us. Mm -hmm. Um, When we lose ourselves, maybe even soul loss, you know, Mm -hmm. fear for being in our body, and parts of us are fragmented out of us, there's space for something else inside you. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of people in the middle world who've died and passed on, but don't know they've died. Mm-hmm. Maybe a sudden car accident, maybe an overdose, something. So there's these souls looking for a body because they're like, where's my body? So they, if they see an opening, they can get easily inside you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, often you find these happen at bars and places where people are getting completely annihilated and passing out. That's a great place for an entity to come and sit inside you. Mm-hmm. And then you'll, these people start acting very strange. They might even have eyes that go in two different directions. Like one, you're looking out of one and the other soul is looking out of the other one. Mm-hmm. And they have different changes in their behavior that people know. Notice and like, oh my gosh, they're just completely different. Mm-hmm. Now they love to smoke and now they love scotch and they never did drink whiskey or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's very real. And so um, they train us how to remove that entity. And oftentimes it's not something like we hear demonic possession and it's not often a, a, a beast or a creature though it can be mm-hmm. it's often just a, a scared soul that doesn't know where to go and doesn't it's lost and it's gotten mm-hmm. confused and so when you go into the middle world and talk to the soul and say hey you know you have passed on and you're in the wrong body you need to move to the light or move to you know some other area and guide them to the upper or lower world uh, that that soul usually readily leaves. Mm-hmm. They're almost sometimes embarrassed or apologetic, going, "Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I wasn't, I didn't know." You know, they're they're very confused. There are times where I've actually seen a very large beast-like entity in a person, um, mm-hmm. and she knew something. She had a, a problem with bulimia, and she didn't love herself, and she was getting over that, and she was working with that. But she had a period of her life where she didn't want to live, and she didn't love herself, mm-hmm. and so she acquired where I don't know this beast of an entity. Mm-hmm. And um, she asked me to remove it from her. And I thought, okay, we'll give it a shot. And it was one of the scariest things I've ever seen. But mm-hmm. <laughs> And it was like energetically a very large creature that obviously was not from this planet, you would mm-hmm. think, and go, where did that come from? And it was very angry. Um, so I had to sage my house because I had a healing mm-hmm. center in my house and remove it. And it did leave. I don't know where it went. It was that kind of entity where you didn't sit there and have a nice conversation to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say that 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 monster was probably in sex and violence, love and empathetic and compassionate talking to would not work in the situation. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but I have no idea. So all I did is I gave her some jewelry that would help block her. And then we talked about powering her up, but I filled her with power and worked with her power animal to give her more energy. And, um, 
that entity never came back and she felt so much more balanced yeah. and um, her need to purge and all that stuff went away. She said part of that wasn't even her. She was just, no, yeah. it was coming from that beast-like creature. There's a, a shaman that I know, I'll, I won't mention the name here because I don't want tons of people banging her door down, but there's a, a, a female shaman that I've worked with myself uh not f- for me i mean i was working with her uh helping her with some other things but um she's an expert at entity removal so i plan on doing a podcast with her and going quite deep into entities cuz i've studied it quite a bit and there's actually some very profound literature on it and i've seen many wild things happen and i've had as Dr. Oliver could attest to, we've had some pretty interesting experiences in HLC training. And we, we actually stopped doing group healings because so many of the students in the class were carrying entities that once we induced the ceremony and the shift in the room came and spirit started showing up, it would push the entities right out of people mm-hmm. and they would start you know, going off and then we would have to stop and do entity work. And, uh, I've had, I had one class in Australia where three people with entities all went off at the same time. And I won't tell the whole story now because I want to save it for that podcast, but it scared the living hell out of people. And, uh, it even scared some of the people that were there to help me. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and so I was kind of left, guarding the fort with 50 crazy people running around freaking out and things like that. So uh, because that was happening so often, I I felt that it was too scary for students at that level of training to really uh, understand. And then they often would like not want to be around these people or come back into the room. You know, it can, Mm -hmm. it can scare people pretty bad. It's yeah. You know, and sometimes these entities aren't, like I said, scary things are children that yeah. get killed early. And so that's what causes a lot of that chaos too, because as a child that is learning that they're passed on, they're five or six years old, they're going to scream and yell and holler. And so a lot of that crying of these entities is could be children. Mm. Oh my gosh, what's going on? Where's my mommy? You know, kind of thing. And I've seen a lot of that. And so, you know, it's a lot of children will take into adult bodies because they're lost looking for somewhere to go. Yeah. So I've seen that. I've also seen entities that are not human, yes, like I, I particles like, that look like, a, I remember one was this object that looked like a metal bracket or something that was in somebody's knee. Wow. And apparently this guy had surgery after surgery, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And so I just started looking there and I saw this energetically, this bracket. And I said, there's just something in there. And all of a sudden... He's like, uh, we yeah, he I put him in a uh, like a you know altered state, and he was talking, and all of a sudden, I recognized that this thing had a, a voice to it. So I started talking to it, and he had picked up this particle, and the only thing I got from this conversation that somewhere he was walking, and energetically something from the cosmos blasted, and it lodged into his knee, mm. and it was stuck there. And when I pulled it out, all his knee pain went away, and to this day, he's never had a problem with his knee again. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know what it was, but it was real. And he goes, I can't explain it. And he goes, but doctor after doctor couldn't find anything. And he goes, you pulled it out and I could walk and there was no pain. And so, yeah, bizarre things like that do happen. So, you know, extraction healing is very powerful. Yeah. It does take a 
a fairly stable shaman to oh, do Oh, yes. It. I mean, I remember in school when I was learning this, and you're seeing you know, this stuff happening. And in class, we were with a group of students, and this woman had respiratory problems, and she always felt like she couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, she was working, and the shaman was working with her and says, oh my gosh, there's a noose around your neck. And you look, and energetically, you could see this noose. And she's like, from a past life, she had mm-hmm. been hung. She was a witch in a past life, and they hung her. Mm-hmm. And she removed this noose, and her her airway opened up, and she never had a problem again. Wild stuff. And you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Which brings up a question that I'll segue to. Uh, recently, there's more awareness of the effects of our ancestors on us through our genes. Um Now, uh, this is Mark Wu Lin's work. I think his book is It Didn't Start With You, if I remember right. I might have the title wrong, but Mark Wu Lin, W-O-O-L-Y-N, for those of you that are interested, very good book. And I began using his method and found it very, very helpful with people, but it's really not such a shamanic approach. It's more based on genetics. There, there is some shamanic elements to it in that you connect to your ancestors and, and ask them to take responsibility for their own karma, but... The way the book's written, most people wouldn't understand that that's actually very in harmony with what shamanism is. I myself have done a number of past life regressions with people that were quite profound. Some of them even shocked me while I was doing them. Like, oh my God, like people living out their death experiences. And Mm -hmm. um, I had one case where a person that I was doing this work with, uh, had been killed in a battle and had a spear through his stomach. And he had chronic, actually had chronic pain where the spear went out his back and he couldn't get rid of this pain. And I couldn't see anything physically related to this and looking at all the things that I look at as a therapist. So my soul said, you need to take him back because he's got a past life uh, challenge he hasn't resolved. And, And so long story made short, I brought him into a regression and he was there in this experience and I told him pull the spear out and while this was happening he was just like literally vomiting right there uh, while I'm working on him and and you know on the floor and things like that but once the spear went out and we finished the the session uh the pain was gone and has never come back mm-hmm. um so the point I'm driving at here is that as a shaman and with your training, what's, what, are you, what are you taught or what are your feelings about uh, our family tree working through us almost in the way that a possession might have? In other words, other means other than genetics. Sure. Well, we learn from our parents and they usually learn from their parents. And so a lot of times we say, oh, why do I have this unconscious behavior? And then we start looking into their lives and go, oh my gosh, I'm acting just like my mother. And then you blame on your mother and you say, well, let's not stop there. Let's look a little further. And like, oh my gosh, she's acting like her grandmother. Mm-hmm. And you realize there's a family pattern of being. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you might be taking on your ancestors' ideas or beliefs and you're seeing problems in your current life because you still adopted those ideas, whether you like it or not. Maybe you just inherited it and don't realize that you're doing that. And so bringing that awareness to them, they go, oh my gosh, I guess I do do that. And so they can stop the cycle so they don't repeat it, so they don't hand that bad way of living to their their offspring. 
So absolutely, you know, and um, sometimes, like you said, it's past life stuff. I've done a great deal of past life work where mm-hmm. a person, I had one girl from the UK where she went to therapist after therapist and couldn't find out why she had this anxiety, chronic anxiety. It was like around 2.30 in the afternoon every day and for years and years. And then it would be so profound that she would have to stay home or she'd lock herself in the office at work and and then it would go away and she could go back on. She's like, I don't know what it is. Is it blood sugar? And we looked at her diet and we were working on handling her hormones. And um, then finally, I'm like, you know, let's try looking at your past life. And so we did a past life uh, retrieval. We looked back at her life and turns out her past life, she was in the uh, military and she was a fire, a firefighter uh, pilot and she got shot down. And she relived that moment. And it was at exactly like 2.30, 2.20 in the afternoon or something. And she remembered it. And once she remembered it, she could let it go mm. and release that. And to this day, she has no problems with anxiety anymore. And she goes, I can't believe it. But she was holding on to this vibrational energy that came, was so strong that it came from a past life. And yeah. so, you know. My urge is to share some of the interesting stories of my own. But I want to ask you some other some other things. So, um, one of the things I'm curious about is if a shaman has a toolkit of basic stuff, what are some of the things that you would say are are in that basic toolkit that most shaman yeah, you have? Know, I would say, in my experience, most shaman are going to have a drum. <clears throat> so a drum is going to be a necessity in that bag, maybe two or three drums. Um, and rattles are extremely important. And I, in my case, I have rattles. I have ceremonial rattles. I have rattles, you know, to, to, for almost anything. For extraction healings, I have a certain mm-hmm. rattle. Uh, I have just different ones. I have a, a rattle for calling in my spirit helpers and guides. Mm-hmm. So each one has a different feel to it and a different energetic tone to it. And I know when I use it. So I use the rattles vibration to achieve a certain energetic harmony in, mm-hmm. when I'm working with somebody. Uh, so rattles and drums are a necessity. Uh, you'll also see, you know, things like incense is sometimes something you'll use when they're, you know, just to help with the senses or, you know, calm the person, you can use different um, incenses to do that. Often when I'm doing a, a healing, I will have all the elements that I can bring in from the outside in. So I often have a candle, so representing fire. Um, I'll have uh, soil from the earth outside representing the earth. And then I'll have um, a bowl of water. So water, whether from the drinking water or water from a lake or something nearby. And so I bring those elements in because I want to call in the spirits of the land as well. And they will help me with my healing. I'll often bring a plant you know, into the environment too, because plants are very good at healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, not all shaman do this, but I bring my dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and She's here now. Yeah, she's down here on the floor, and she's a very good at healing. In fact, she's done a lot of healing work with me, and she often, when a person needs healing, will want to sit between their legs. So if a, a client's laying down, she'll lay between their legs, and her head will heat up. And it's a really interesting thing. It's almost like Reiki energy coming from her head. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't normally happen unless we're in a healing. And I'll notice it gets very, very hot. And it's the most amazing thing. But she senses that healing and she does the healing work with me. And even though she's getting older, she still does that work with me, which is amazing. You also told me that she knows when people are going to die. She can, yes, for sure. She's uh, and she has uh, talked to me many times. Uh, you know, when I was in shaman school, actually, the first time was when I was in mystery school, and I was away from her. And I was, you know, it's mystery school. You go away for ten, twelve days, and it was a long time to be away from her. She's my little baby, and one of the teachers says, "Well, during your meditation, talk to her and tell her what's going on." And I said, "Well, that's a great idea." 
So at this school, it's a closed campus. There's no cell phones, no outside connection to the outside world. Wise. So while I was in there, I was just journaling everything that was happening. And then I was talking to my dog and all of a sudden I started getting messages back. Hmm. And I'm like, what? And it was like a little girl's voice, but I was like, this is Maggie and I'm fine. And she was telling me stories and I'm like, this is crazy. And I'm like, well, I'm going to write it down. So one day she says, oh, um, this was when uh, when I was with my ex-husband. She says, oh, um, Bill took me to the um, golf course today and I got in some trouble. And I'm thinking, it's Tuesday. You know, usually we'd walk around Mondays when the golf course was closed. I'm like, why would she go on a Tuesday? It's really bizarre. So I just wrote it in my book. And then another day, she's like, you know, I was really missing you, um, but Bill brought me to the office, and, and Dee, this girl who worked at my front desk, she was there, and she must have known I was, she sensed that I was sad, and she put me in her lap, and she held me, and I felt much better. So I wrote this in my book. Of course, when I got back, the first thing I said to Bill was, hey, did you take Maggie to the golf course on a Tuesday? And he goes, yeah, how did you know that? I said, Maggie told me. And so he was already privy to the idea that I did things, so he was okay with that. He's like, okay. And he says, well, I said, she said she got into trouble. And he goes, she did. She decided to run across the river onto the other side. And she was running back and forth laughing at me. And I didn't want to go through the river because I had my shoes on. So I kept on calling her. And finally, she came back across. I said, well, that's pretty funny. So then I went to work. And I said, Dee, was Maggie here on Friday? You know, she told me she was here on that Friday. And she goes, yeah, how did you know that? And I said, well, she told me. And I said, she told me she was upset. And I go, she put her, you put her in her lap. She goes, okay, that's really weird. There was no one in the office when that happened. How would you know that? <laughs> I said, Maggie told me. So dogs are very good at communicating. And so mm-hmm. they can tell you things that you may not pick up on because they're picking up on subtle energy. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you pay attention to animals, they often will suffer the same disease as their owner. So yes. you'll see cancer and the dog has cancer. Diabetes, mm-hmm. the dog has diabetes. And if that person doesn't have it, the dog may be ha- having it first. And eventually that owner will pick up on it because it's energetically in their field. Yeah, I saw a documentary recently. I don't remember the title of it, but they went into that and showed numerous cases of dogs that had acquired the same disease as the, its owner. Mm-hmm. And one of the suggestions was is that they were doing it out of sympathy. Mm-hmm. They were trying to take on the burden yeah. for the owner. Yeah, what I feel is it's they're picking up on the energetic field, and they love you so much, they pick up and they embrace your energetic field, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. And they hold on to that energy, and like I said, absorb some of that from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just before we run out of time, why don't you share some of the most interesting or profound experiences that you've had in your own, either in your own shamanic practices. Well, should or... we talk about the one that just happened? About the woodpecker? Well, you can tell them about that. That's pretty interesting. We've, me and you have had some interesting ones together. I, I think I would be the witness to what was going on with you uh, because I, I've definitely noticed that there's things that happen around you. <laughs> I, I said to someone the other day, the thing about being married to a shaman is if she's not in a good mood, you'll know it because blackbirds and things will start falling out of the sky and the water will change color and all sorts of shit starts <laughs> It'll going start on. start raining and the storm will happen. Yeah. Yes, and I, I do feel that way. And I sometimes I used to think of my moods were connected to the, the environment, but now I think my mood creates the environment. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> um, so that recent story that I'll share with you is that um, 
just recently, I was um, it was around my birthday um, in October. I was driving up to the Heaven House to see Paul. We were going to celebrate my birthday and uh, do some painting together. And so, as I was driving up the hill, if you've ever been to the Heaven House, it's this very t- tall, steep hill. And I'm driving up this road, and I see this red thing in the road, and I stop because I'm like, "What's that?" And I back up, and I'm like, and I notice it's a woodpecker. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So I get out of my car. And of course, you know, I have my phone with me. So I'm taking a picture. I'm like, there's a woodpecker sitting in the road. So I get out and I pick it up. And it's obviously stunned. And so I take a picture. I snap it. So I have these. I post them on Facebook. I'm like, here is a woodpecker in my hand. And I'm like, well, something energetically what felt to me is like maybe a crow or some bigger bird attacked it and kind of threw it off its ground and maybe fell on the ground. It was a little stunned. So I picked it up because I was in a hurry. So I thought, well, let's come with me in my car. So I put it in the dashboard and it was driving up the road and it kind of moved around and it popped into my hair and was sitting on my head. I'm like, this is really bizarre because one, you know, we think a woodpecker would not want anything to do with a human, yet alone sit in their hair while I'm driving. So I'm taking pictures of my phone going, there was a woodpecker in my hair. (laughs) And it's just looking around while I'm driving the car. And eventually it finally jumped to the neighboring uh, seat post and it was sat there. And then when I came up to the hill, I remember you came out to greet me. And I said, look what's in my car. Yeah. And as I opened the door, the bird flew out. So it had got over its stunness. And I mm. thought, there was a message here for me. And I quite first, I looked it up. And I, it was like something about new beginnings and new opportunities in your life. And I'm like, well, this is great. This sounds very exciting. You know. So I went on my way. And then the next day, I'm walking my dog and in my neighborhood and, and in, the, in our Vista location. And I see this giant tarantula. Mm-hmm. Well, in the seven years I've been there, I've never seen a tarantula in this area. Now at the Heaven House, we have them all the time. Yeah. But this is a very uncommon occurrence of a tarantula in this area. So yeah. I take a picture of that because I had my phone. I'm like, wow, it's very interesting. And so, you know, I'm like, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, tarantulas are about spinning their web and creating new, uh, new things, new, new dimensions. And I'm like, okay. So, and then the next day, I run into a snake. And I'm like, this is weird. And it was stunned too. So I picked it up. I didn't pick up the tarantula. Now I could have because it was stunned. It didn't move. So all these animals were kind of stunned waiting for me to pick them up or touch them in some way. And I know tarantulas don't bite, but I just thought it was getting late and you know, I just didn't have any need to touch it. But I literally sat there and talking to it and almost petting it. And I just, it just sat there. And this snake was stunned. So I did pick up the snake. I'm I like, saw the picture. I was really surprised you picked up a snake that big. Yeah. And so I was like, hello, how are you? And it was just very quiet. So I gave it some love and some energy. And I took it out of the road and put it on the side. And even Mana wanted to pet the snake. And I was like, okay, let's go before it wakes up too much. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I was like, well, these are some very strong an- animals in my field. And then the next day, I was uh, at the storage unit and I was clearing out a storage unit and I see this little mouse. And again, the mouse is stunned and it's in the way of the road. So I had these workers helping me move the storage and we had to go around the mouse. It was literally, I could have picked it up and I'm like, this is a wild mouse. I don't want to get bit by something wild. You never know what a mouse has. So I just talked to it and it kind of moved out of its way, but it was with us for a good 30, 40 minutes, completely kind of stunned. And so all these animals were the same. They were in my field where I could literally touch them or pick them up. And I'm like, wow, this is really interesting to have so many different animals come to me like that. So I posted it on Facebook, and one of my friends, who must be a shaman, mm-hmm. <laughs> she says, Angie, are you pregnant? And I went, 
ah, that's so funny. No, I, you know, I have mana and I, I'm not having another child, but I go, you'd be the first one to know. And I thought this was so funny. She, I go, why would you say that? She goes, well, you know, a bird makes a nest, a spider makes a web, you know, a, a mouse will do, you know, has a, the nest too, it's nurturing and snake is Kundalini energy. So all these indicate and rebirth. And rebirth. And so she says, all of this makes sense that you'd be having a child. And I was like, oh, that's just crazy. You know, so lo and behold, if you guys don't know, surprise, I am pregnant with our second child. And so it was almost like great spirit was talking to us and saying, there's something big coming up in your field. And it was before we even knew it. So, you know, uh, the other thing that I found really fascinating is when you, I had never seen a woodpecker that looked like that. And when you researched, it wasn't even from, it's not even, it's, it's not even from this area. From this area. No. We're not even supposed to have those woodpeckers here. Right. Where was it from? It was from would, like another country. Yeah, I know. It was like South America or something, but it was not something commonly found no. here at all. It was something. And it had yeah. a, 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 a great big, uh, cock on it like a you know like the the mm -hmm. i don't know what i can't remember the name of it but the headdress on like a red a cockatiel or something the, yeah. yeah the the top of the rooster's head the prongs sticking yeah. out you know i forgot the name of that part of the rooster but it it looked like it had a rooster's headdress on a little tiny you know small yeah. black woodpecker and i have never seen a black woodpecker around here anywhere and uh so that was just sort of mysterious in itself. And, you know, it's, there's lots of stories. I just feel compelled to share. One time I was at your house. This is before we lived together. So this is, you know, a lot, number of years ago. And we had just finished working out, I think. We were gone for a walk. We were, I think we were doing sprinting. Uh, we were doing sprint And we repeats. went for a walk in the evening. Uh, well, I think we this, just took Maggie for a walk. I think it was in the evening. It was a nice night. And we decided, okay, yeah. Is that well, I'm talking about uh -huh. the hummingbird. Oh no, I was talking about the skunk. Oh no, I wasn't talking about the skunk. <laughs> we had just come back from sprinting. Okay. Oh right. Okay. And we right. were walking into your front yard, which had a very big uh, pine tree. I'm not sure what family it is, but uh -huh. a, you know, like a tree, mm -hmm. a 80 feet tall and two feet at the butt. And just as we were walking past the tree, there was a. I think was it you that almost stepped on it or me? Um, I think it was me because I think Maggie was getting close to it. Yeah, but there was a tiny baby hummingbird. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the size of, yes, you know, maybe it was like tiny, a, like the, my thumb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a part of your thumb. I mean, maybe an ounce or something like. And it, and you could see that it hadn't been around very long. It barely it, had its feathers. Yeah, it barely had any feathers. It, it fluff looked like it. it pulled right out of an egg. Mm -hmm. And we looked up and there was a nest up above us and something had happened and this thing will, uh, you know, you did most of the work, but we raised it together. We taught it how to fly. Mm -hmm. We named it Sunil. Mm -hmm. And it took, I think, 23 days, if I remember right, before it could go off on its own. Yeah, yeah I remember. And I was getting it strong enough and it, we were practicing flying and it wasn't strong enough. And we'd bring it here to the heaven house and it'd fly on all the trees and learn mm -hmm. aeronautics and it'd land on your finger. And yeah. And then one day I thought, okay, it's strong enough. So I put it outside and at night, usually I left it outside all day and then it would come back at night. And then this one particular day I was bringing it in, it would sit on top of its birdcage, not inside. And I brought it in and it said the sound to me and it sounded like, no, I don't want to go inside the house tonight. Mm. And it flew out. I'm like, well, she, she's old enough. She's strong enough, I guess. So I said, all right. So I put her cage out back outside and let her go. And um, the next morning I came out there and she flew back to me and she was covered in water, wet. 
and she's shaking like this. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And she's looking at me and I'm like, are you okay? And I try to bring her back in and she's like, no, you know, it just sound like a, it was like a no. Like mm-hmm. she was, I don't know if it was energetic, but I knew she was saying, no, I don't want you to help me, but I want you to see I'm okay, but I'm cold. Yeah. I'm like, okay. So I was very worried. Well, then the next night, you know, it, it, you know, we stayed away and then the next night flew back and the next morning I saw it and it was warm it, it obviously must have slept somewhere where there was a sprinkler or something and it got cold and so the next night it was found a place that was warm and its feathers were dry and it showed up in the morning like look at me i'm okay i'm okay mm-hmm. and i realized okay it's learning how to be in the wild but mm-hmm. i remember that first night as a mother it was kind of like no come back i'll save you but the little bird was like no no i'm i'm, I'm okay mom but i'm i'm cold <laughs> yeah what about some of your you know what one of the questions i wanted to ask you too is You've done uh, shamanic work with plant medicines, and you've done tons of it without. What What is your feeling about the difference between the two? I mean, one of the reasons I'm asking that is, you know, you've got this craze of people now uh, running everywhere to, to get any kind of psychedelic, and often for the wrong reasons, not realizing what they're getting into. Um, and I've had a long string of people who have gotten very messed up doing psychedelics with would-be shaman or people that just have a pocket full of drugs. And, you know, you've, you've seen what I do, you know what I do and you know how many people get in trouble. But, uh, what do you think? Well, first of all, what, what did, what, what are some of your experiences? What are the differences and what advice do you have for people that, might not really realize what they're getting into with psychedelics and that there's a lot of opportunities for them for a lot of opening without them. Yeah, you know, I would say, you know, you need to be healthy first. Like we talk about a, a healthy shaman being energetically balanced and good posture and being able to see what they're seeing. The same thing, a lot of people are very sick and mm. they're not taking care of themselves and so they're very toxic. Well, a plant medicine is going to detox you first, you know? Mm. So a lot of people, oh, I think it's going to be such an amazing experience. Well, then they sit around throwing up all day, you yeah. know? And they're purging all their n- negative emotions and, and yeah. all their food or whatever that's been toxifying their body. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, wow. And so oftentimes they don't have a positive experience at all and they can't see a message because it was so uncomfortable for them. So my message is if you're going to try that, make sure that you're you know healthy enough to understand the message so you can see what, what's being presented to you so that you do have a positive experience. You know, I think sometimes when you have, you know, all these emotions stuck in you, they come out like, like entities, even though they're not. And you, all of a sudden you have this experience where something's coming to get you and you're f- freaking out and it's really your own ego. <laughs> well, you, you, you also can on psychedelics because they enhance internal perception can become conscious of entities that are within you, but you don't realize sure. that it's an entity. So it can it can be very scary for a person, and and sometimes there are entities that are representations of their own negative judgments and biases towards themselves and other people. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know, I'll go into this when I get in do a podcast on it. But those are called thought form entities. So they, if you think a thought repeatedly enough, it actually attracts uh, enough energy to it to become yeah you uh, blow consciousness into it, it embody you, you, yeah. you create a look and in, in shamanism you know how you charge an amulet mm-hmm. well you can charge yourself as an amulet with negative energy right and just the same way an amulet can have power so can the entity that you create with your constant regurgitation of whatever it is right nobody loves me or whatever it could be uh 
uh, I'm angry at so and so, and you know I see these things happen when people get raped or or uh, attacked violently, and they hold deep bitter resentment toward the person, not realizing that uh, strangely they're now attacking the individual energetically and doing uh, an energetic. Um, they're doing energetically what was done to them physically. But not, but justifying it because they're wounded, mm-hmm. and not realizing that your thoughts create your reality. So if you keep creating the same kind of darkness inside yourself that was that that you interacted with in physical form, then you ultimately manifest that reality inside yourself. Right. So when people get on psychedelic medicines and the ego's filtration system is gone and their inner vision is enhanced by the effects of the medicine they can run into lots of very scary things inside right. of themselves. Because usually the medicine will, it's almost like a lot of the experience I've had is like you're seeing yourself outside of the forest. Like you're looking, you're a, if you were as a metaphor, this forest and you're seeing the whole forest and you can laugh at yourself mm-hmm. and you can see how you've been and you realize sometimes you're being taken life too seriously. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I've sat there and laughed and laughed because I realized, oh my gosh, my way of being is so stern or my way of being is so serious and mm-hmm. and it teaches me to lighten up. So, but if I can see if you had some emotions that were disturbing and you saw that you might actually get freaked out by it mm-hmm. or, you know, deny it or something and you may not have the same experience I did where you'd laugh and go, oh my gosh, I'm so cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you have, so there's caution there and so making sure that the right frame of mind. And I know that going into a journey, you know, your emotions can can alter the way your experience will be. So if you're just got in a fight with your partner and you go into a journey, you're probably going to have a lot of emotions rise up out of, from love and, you know, fear of betrayal or loss or something. And those emotions will come and grip you. Mm-hmm. So whatever you're thinking is your dominant thought usually comes out because it's those medicines will want to share with you what's going on inside you, what's alive in you. And yeah. so if you're having a lot of love and happiness and joy in your life, that's going to show up and you're going to have a very amazing experience. So if you have a life and you hate or greed or jealousy, that's going to be exposed to you. And yeah, and those dominant thoughts may not be conscious to the individual. It may, right. uh, many such people don't think they think that way. Right. But they're not paying attention because they're habituated to. Right. It's part of it's second nature. It's, it's their... their the way they relate to themselves in the world is usually pessimistic, negative, poor me. And that's where Carolyn Mice's uh, survival archetypes are very helpful for identifying where these, um, shall we say, challenges have emerged so that people can heal. But, but, you know, for example, what would you suggest to someone like, I don't know if you remember at the uh, party we had for the Czech Institute in Toronto, there was a young young man and his dad, and he was all excited about some work with him. running off into the jungle and doing <laughs> yes. ayahuasca, and he was going to go do a couple of other medicines. And my first reaction looking at him and his dad was saying, I think that you should just follow my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy for a Correct. while. Because you have no idea what you're getting into, you know, because it's all sensationalized on the internet and on documentaries. And, and so, you know, they're, they're, the series Psychedelica by, by uh, Ben Stewart is the best uh, series that actually outlines and, and really gives you a comprehensive understanding of the, of the benefits and the challenges of psychedelics I've seen. But, for example, what, what as a shaman might you tell 
that person to do with a drum or a rattle yeah, or their sure. voice. You know, and some of my experiences with a drum have been so profound. I think they almost outweigh the psychedelics in a way, because when you're doing a psychedelic drug, you say, well, that was the drug talking. Mm-hmm. But when you have an out-of-body experience and you're not on any drug, there's nothing to say this is caused by what. And so my experience is like I've had some full-on 3D, like in a movie experience, like a dream that you're living surreal where you feel the wind in your face and your hair moving back and you know tasting things, eating things, jumping out of trees, all sorts of things. And I remember my body was laying down still on the ground. And I could feel my heartbeat going, but I wasn't in my body. I was completely somewhere else. And I realized, and it was all done with a drum. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I had like my first full-on experience in shaman school is one of the reasons I signed up and said, sign me up in this program. I need to know more. We were doing just a basic, was the basic shamanism course where you had to go into the lower world and to see what power animal was there for you. And often at this level, people haven't had experience. So they go down and they go, oh, I might've seen a horse. I think I saw a head of a horse or the mm-hmm. tail of a horse. And, oh, I think I saw a wing. It might've been a bat, you know, and and my experience, because I said I studied Michael Harner's book before I went, and I had studied with the drums and been meditating and doing all this stuff. So when I had an experienced live drummer who was very skilled mm-hmm. drumming for me live, wow, yeah. what it did to the vibration of my ear. Yeah, I was, I was like, do, do, do. I just lay down. And the next thing I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this little assignment. And the next thing I know, I was just blown away. Like I remember being walking in this forest in this field and this big giant raven came and pulled me up by my shirt and flew me into the deep forest and and I was just like oh my goodness and I literally felt this the tongs of its you know feet yeah and and it was this giant raven I'm like this is crazy and I like and and I remember just feeling the sensation of wind and speed and flying up to the tops of this tree and it dropped me in the middle of this tree and all of a sudden, it went off and started pulling stuff from the forest, and it was feeding it to me. And it was like a mushroom and a root and a, a branch of some kind. And I was just chewing all this earthy stuff. I was like a worm or something. And all of a sudden, this combination of these three things molted me into this raven. Mm. And I was like, and I looked down at my body, and I had this raven body, and I was just giant raven. And I'm like, and I'm looking at this raven and we're talking, you know, like telepathically and it's like, follow me. And so we start flying and I remember seeing myself flying and then the, I saw the horizon changing and instead of the sun going from east to west, it was going from west to east, like we were going back in time. Mm. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I remember landing and we'd stop and we'd see this like um, a, a tribe like a, a, doing a ritual. And at first it was very almost boring, you know, it was like a basic ritual. They were, you know, worshiping around a campfire and nothing was exciting about it, but it was just this tribe doing this. And the raven nods at me and we'd go further back in time. And as we went further in time, the the tribal people became shorter in stature and their teeth became more jagged and they looked more rustic and the rituals became more extreme. Mm. And I remember them biting heads off at animals and stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, but there was a much deeper connection to the earth. Mm. And so, yes, they sacrificed an animal, but everybody was paying attention and everybody was present and aware of life and the importance of life and the blood of this animal. And, and I realized, yes, there was sacrifice, but there was deep connection. It's like nowadays you think about being in church and you sit down and you just kneel down and there's nothing connecting you and you're thinking about doing your laundry and getting your car washed and nothing that's bringing you there. But these people had a way of, yes, but through sacrifice, bringing you deeply connected to realize we are alive in the flesh and 
And so it was a powerful experience. And I remember flying all the way back into the ice age. And, uh, it was like this family and these, I remember thinking, this is my ancestors. And I remember being in the snow and I was sitting in the tree with my other Raven friend. And all of a sudden this time, the shaman of the group, like the tribal chief looked at me and pointed at me and I'm like, you know, cause I hadn't been spotted in all the other tribes. And he looked at me and says, ah, we've been, we've been um, blessed by an astro traveler. I'm like, oh, that must be me. And he's like, can you come down and you know, share with us? And that moment, I remember slipping out of the tree. And as I was falling from the tree, I moved and lost my wings, became me again. Mm. And I walked up to this tribe as me. And they all looked at me. And he goes, can you tell us where you've been? And I opened up my arms. And I became like a movie projector. And everything that I've seen in my life, everything, whether it be in my life or what I'd seen, like 9-11 events like that, I remember just shooting through me. <laughs> And they were just watching my whole life unfold and everything that I knew and had seen in the future or in their future and and my past. And it just came through and he looked at me and goes, ah, thank you. And I remember he handed me this white stone and he says, and when it's your time to live, we'll be there with you. Mm. And just then the call back came back and I woke up and I was brought back into my body and I was like, holy cow. I mean, it was just so profound. And then the teacher's looking at me. And like I said, this is the basic class. Mm. And I had no idea that what I experienced was not really normal at that level. And it wasn't that I was special. It's just that I had been practicing. Yeah. And it was like, and the teacher, I, I had to share. And she's like, well, let's not try what Angie just did, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what, what? And then everybody was sharing. And I realized that, n- that this was a amazing experience, you know, and it was one of my most profound experiences. And it was almost like a carrot, like, you know, my guides were there saying, come on, we want you to do this. We're going to give you a, you know, it's like a really amazing experience. So you follow through on this path, you know? And I was just like, wow, it was just so mind blowing. So that, and the, the drum, I think was only five minutes. And I felt I was gone for, like you said, the time to take me to tell you the story. It was like a long time. Yeah. I was, time definitely, uh, changes its nature yeah. as you enter into altered states. Um, you know, a story of my own short one. Uh, one time, Dr. Oliver was coming over to, to visit me to to drum, and, and, you know, he plays the didgeridoo and the guitar, and, you know, he's a real musician. So uh, he came over, and he had gotten this new drum from someone who was a master drum maker and uh, shaman and things like that. I don't remember the exact details, but I said, I first thing I noticed was this nice drum. And I said, Hey, can I try that? He said, yes, just be careful with it. It's really powerful. And I'm like, you know, in my head, I'm like, dude, I'm I'm an ex paratrooper. I don't think this drum's going to give me any trouble. Um, (laughs) but I sat on my swing in front of your bedroom and I just started playing the drum. And I was just playing, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a typical uh, shamanic trance state beat, four beats a second. And I don't even really remember what happened, but I dropped into a very deep trance and was having <clears throat> an experience in another dimension. And I didn't realize what had happened, but I guess... 30 or 40 minutes had gone by and Dr. Oliver's sitting there waiting for me to play music, but I'm completely gone. So finally he nudges me and, and kind of knocks me out of the trance. And he goes, I told you. And I looked at him <laughs> and I could tell the sun had moved significantly. I'm like, how long was I gone? He said, oh, quite a while. And I'm like, you were right. This is a very powerful drum, you know? 
so, you know, that which brings up a sort of a side note. A drum, an, ob, an instrument like that can be powerful, not because it's made of wood and skin, but because it's infused with the spirit yes. of the animal. It's infused with the spirit of the tree that it came from. It's infused with the spirit of the drum maker. And, and also all the people who've drummed it all before. All the people that have drummed with it and your own consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, part of it is because he told me it was a powerful drum. Maybe I just opened myself to the experience and expected it to be powerful. Mm-hmm. So there may have been a, a, a you know a pre-framing of my mind. In other words, if you know if a famous musician hands you a guitar and says, "This is a very good guitar. You're going to love this." Well, then you already have the sense that it's going to be good. You know, but it's it, it's just making the point that. That was his, that was, uh, you know, this, the same depth and potency of a shamanic journey with medicines, except that you don't have to deal with the fact that when you come out of a trance like that, within a couple of minutes, I'm back mm-hmm. walking, talking, you know, I can, you know, work on my car or, uh, you, you know, do things without any um, come down or integration type period. But if you were on a psychedelic medicine, you'd you'd have to, you know, the drug's active for a given number of hours and, you know, you're in it, it right? So that's another thing you, you, when people aren't ready to be in their unconscious and tapped into these other worlds for six to eight hours, uh, you know, San Pedro, I've done San Pedro ceremonies that were 21 hours long. I mean, this stuff's powerful and it lasts a long time at the right doses. And some medicines can, you know, go a good 10, 11 hours. So if a person's, you know, novice and they don't have what I call flying wings, they don't have, you know, good management skills and they don't know how to work in these other dimensions, getting on a drug when you don't have the support or the skill is really almost like getting caught in a time machine and ending up somewhere that may not very be very fun <laughs> and you don't know how to get the time machine to get right. you home. Mm-hmm. But you but that's, can... That's a good way to point out. It's like, you know, if, if you have a problem with, you know, alcohol or, you know, a regular substance that you've tried before and you're not a very good drunk, well, you may not be a very good, you know, surfer either. <laughs> yeah, you may not be a good psychonaut either. Right. But, uh, well, you know, but probably the last question I'll ask just because we're, we're We've been at it for a while. I don't. I don't want to, the podcasters to miss lunch um, <laughs> or dinner. And I hope you're all enjoying this. I, I I love this stuff. And you know, I don't know how many of you are familiar with me, but I'm uh, somebody who's very well grounded in the logical. Uh, you know, the mechanical, the methodological, and the check systems built on a lot of, as you know, very objective assessments. But I'm also very open to all that is and i'm not one who just believes other people's based on their bias i i I go explore things for myself and my whole life and we haven't really talked about some of my experiences but i began having very powerful mystical experiences around the time i was uh 12 uh yeah 12 actually the first one was uh when i was eight when my father died but i'll save those for another day but um I wanted to kind of close out and, and ask you if you could share now, you know, you're an instructor, you pretty much run the whole holistic lifestyle coaching program. Now, uh, you, you know, you've got 
a lot of degrees. We haven't talked about that, but you have a degree in energy medicine. You got a degree in nutrition. You got a degree in biology, and you're an advanced trained shaman. I got them all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're also very grounded in the kind of the uh, Newtonian reality. Um, what would you say is the unique offering that you got? With all that background and all those degrees, coming to the Czech Institute, going through the various courses you did, HLC 1, HLC 2, HLC 3, and then all the training to be an instructor, uh, how did that change your practice? And and what is it about HLC training that you might recommend even for people that think they want to be a shaman or a healer or a psychic or any of those things. Yeah, you know, so, you know, if I, when I was a personal trainer, you worked with the physical body, mm-hmm. you know, and then you're working with, the, you know, shamanism, you're working with the spiritual body, mm-hmm. you know, and what the holistic lifestyle approach is working with the body in physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. So you're working in all the realms. Yeah. And so that, that, those three courses, um, yes, I'm the head of the department of the holistic lifestyle um, courses now is they teach you how, you know, the basics, like I was saying before, to think right, to breathe right, to eat right, to drink right, to move right, to sleep right. And then it teaches you how to use your mind effectively. Yes. You know, so we teach you powerful tools and how to change so that you create what you want in life and identify what you really want, knowing your dream and knowing what your path is. Uh, And then, you know, we take it even further into, you know, HLC3 work, which is, you know, looking at your organ systems and seeing what's going on internally. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's causing a problem emotionally and how you can identify by just doing, you know, reflex points on the hands and the feet and seeing is there a problem with my organ system and maybe there's a creation, something going on here or looking at the teeth and we have, you have created the maps of the teeth as well as um, Paul's created these beautiful mind maps into how three different ways of looking at life and how people uh, usually have, will fit one of these categories. You can identify your, your client better and talk to them according to their needs and what, what they need to learn at that stage of development that they're in. That's what it is. There's psychological stages of development. Right. And so um, all of that is you know, necessary to really help a person go through a healing Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, that's what's the beauty about it. So it's like, yes, shamanism is one aspect, but when you encompass everything else that we do with the holistic training, you can really see how beneficial it is because you might be scratching your head going, yeah, I'm a good shaman. I know how to do this work, but the person's coming back again and again to see me for the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you're just like the chiropractor or just like the doctor giving a magic p- pill, mm-hmm. but they're not actually healing. You know, it's like you take their symptoms away for a week or two and then they have the problems again. And so with this kind of training, you can really dive deep and really figure out like unpeeling an onion and going where is the cause of this problem what's going on with them internally so mm-hmm. it gives you the experience and the tools to really look beyond just the spiritual envelope and guess we use the spiritual side in holistic training but also learning about the body physically and emotionally mm-hmm. and mentally and all of that is so important to see the body as a whole yeah and that's what I think is so valuable about the training that you can't get anywhere. It's just to really look at all those levels are listed for you and to understand and what to look for and to identify in a person to help them get to the, what their dream is. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's taken me my whole life of research and clinical practice to weed through it all. And I traveled the world for a long time studying with the best people I could find to, to learn not a bunch of theoretical fluff but how do you actually get results for people with various problems and so the program is a compendium of not only the best things i've learned all over the world but it's 
a synthesis of the research that I've looked at. It's a synthesis of techniques that I learned from every source that I practiced. And I think, too, that with context to our conversation, it, there's room for shamanism in it. You know, it's mm-hmm. a multidisciplinary Absolutely. program. We don't have... And that's Closed the beautiful doors. thing about shamanism is it's not a, unif- a thing where you say, okay, I'm practicing shamanism, can't practice anything else. Yeah. Shamanism lends itself to other work, but yeah. also our the Czech training lends itself to shamanism. So it's a beautiful marriage because it's yeah. like it invites them together. And all the other disciplines as well. For When a Czech level four goes through their testing, they have to identify uh, how and when to refer to at least 19 or 20 different types of health and medical practitioners so that they don't uh, make the mistake of trying to be a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, or hoarding clients or overlooking things. So part of the function of the program is to teach people how would a doctor look at this? How would an osteopath look at this? How would a naturopath look at this? How would a nutritionist look at this? And because I've studied these fields and lectured in many of them uh, and worked very closely with the best people in the world in many different fields, I was able to actually develop that skill. For example, I spent time working with Alexander practitioners. I took Alexander lessons myself. And so I learned from my own experience and study, well, this, this type of case is like I have a professional baseball player I'm working with right now for off-season rehabilitation and conditioning. One of the first words out of my mouth before I watched him walk two steps is, you need to go see Eileen Troberman for Alexander work because you're way, way too contracted and you need to learn to use inhibition or you're going to just burn your body out, you know, and lo and behold, he spent a lot of time uh, training as a bodybuilder, which is, you know, the kind of the worst thing a professional baseball player or most professional athletes can do because of the effects on the motor system. But, well, it's been a a great journey. Is there any closing words that you would like to share for people? I mean, one of the questions I had in there is if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you say to people as your last message? So with all your life experience and what you know and what you lived through and learned, if you imagine yourself as the mother of the world and the people of the world were your children, what advice would you leave them with? You know, um, what I would say is, you know, when I went to mystery school, that's one of the things you go through and say, why, why am I here on this planet? And what came through me strongly is I'm here to inspire. I'm here to, you know, inspiration. And so my message is to inspire you to delve into shamanism if that feels good and that feels right for you or Become a holistic lifestyle coach if that you feel a strong urge or call to learn something like that. Um, so my the message is to, I want to inspire you to become your true potential, your highest mm. self, and 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 that means that you have to you know all your quirkiness is your uniqueness, and that's what makes you special. And so when you say, oh gosh, I think I hear voices or I see auras or see that, dive into that, embrace that, and say that's part of me, and really get to know that side of you. And so I always ha- I say to my students. Be you. Everybody else is already taken. Yeah. And so just I want to inspire you to be you. And if you have a calling to be a shaman or you have a calling to be a holistic coach, go and do that. Don't wait for someone to tell you to do it. Or, you know, you ask people, what should I do? They'll have lots of opinions of what you should do with your life. But really, I want you to inspire you to just 
rise up inside of yourself and say, what is true to me? What is my authentic purpose here on this planet? And use your gifts that you're given because, like I said, there's only one of you and there's only one person who has those gifts. Yeah. Hey, well, great journey. I'm sure we'll have many other visitations here together on the Living 4D with Paul Check podcast. Today was Living 4D with Paul and Angie Check. And Zoe is the name of our little one, (laughs) unless we find out it's not a girl, but we're pretty sure it is. (laughs) So it was the Paul Check and Angie Check and Zoe Check and Penny's in the background here doing all the techno (laughs) stuff. And Maggie's here with us too. So thank you guys for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this exploration of shamanism or modern shamanism. And I hope you enjoyed all the things we talked about. And I hope if you're having the urge to run off to the jungle and do a bunch of drugs that you run to the Native American Indian store and get a drum and some rattles and practice singing and chanting and just using rhythm and learning to control your mind because I can promise you if you have a hard time controlling your mind without psychedelics you're going to be in for a very interesting surprise when you get about five grams of mushrooms floating around in your blood vessels and that'll change the way you see things but so lots of love everyone look forward to sharing something really exciting with you next session next week whenever we can get it out there bye-bye Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Angie Check. To find out more about Angie or to consult with her for lifestyle coaching, energy medicine, or shamanism work, you can reach her via her website, angiesworld.com. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living 4D Podcast or on YouTube, search for Living 4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at www.paulcheckblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at www.checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.